Chapters 2 and 3 of Book 8 of Les Miserables, Volume 4, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Hermanson. Les Miserables, Volume 4, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Eight, Chapter Two, The Bewilderment of Perfect Happiness. They existed vaguely, frightened at their happiness. They did not notice the cholera which decimated Paris precisely during that very month. They had confided in each other as far as possible, but this had not extended much further than their names. Marius had told Cosette that he was an orphan that his name was Marius Pontmercy, that he was a lawyer, that he lived by writing things for publishers, that his father had been a colonel, that the latter had been a hero, and that he, Marius, was on bad terms with his grandfather, who was rich. He had also hinted at being a baron, but this had produced no effect on Cosette. She did not know the meaning of the word. Marius was Marius. On her side, she had confided to him that she had been brought up at the Petit Picpus convent, that her mother, like his own, was dead, that her father's name was Monsieur Fauchelevent, that he was very good, that he gave a great deal to the poor, but that he was poor himself, and that he denied himself everything, though he denied her nothing. Strange to say, in the sort of symphony which Marius had lived since he had been in the habit of seeing Cosette, the past, even the most recent past, had become so confused and distant to him that what Cosette had told him satisfied him completely. It did not even occur to him to tell her about the nocturnal adventure in the hovel, about Thenardier, about the burn, and about the strange attitude and singular flight of her father. Marius had momentarily forgotten all this. In the evening, he did not even know that there had been a morning. What he had done, where he had breakfasted, nor who had spoken to him. He had songs in his ears, which rendered him deaf to every other thought. He only existed at the hours when he saw Cosette. Then, as he was in heaven, it was quite natural that he should forget earth. Both bore languidly the indefinable burden of immaterial pleasures. Thus lived these somnambulists who were called lovers. Alas, who is there who has not felt all these things? Why does there come an hour when one emerges from this azure? And why does life go on afterwards? Love almost takes the place of thinking. Love is an ardent forgetfulness of all the rest. Then ask logic of passion if you will. There is no more absolute logical sequence in the human heart than there is a perfect geometrical figure in the celestial mechanism. For Cosette and Marius nothing existed except Marius and Cosette. The universe around them had fallen into a hole. They lived in a golden minute. There was nothing before them, nothing behind. It hardly occurred to Marius that Cosette had a father. His brain was dazzled and obliterated. 
Of what did these lovers talk then? We have seen of the flowers and the swallows, the setting sun and the rising moon, and all sorts of important things. They had told each other everything except everything. The everything of lovers is nothing. But the father, the realities, that layer, the ruffians, that adventure, to what purpose? And was he very sure that this nightmare had actually existed? They were two, and they adored each other. And beyond that, there was nothing. Nothing else existed. It is probable that this vanishing of hell in our rear is inherent to the arrival of paradise. Have we beheld demons? Are there any? Have we trembled? Have we suffered? We no longer know. A rosy cloud hangs over it. So these two beings lived in this manner, high aloft, with all that improbability which is in nature. Neither at the nadir nor at the zenith, between man and seraphim, above the mire, below the ether, in the clouds, hardly flesh and blood, soul and ecstasy from head to foot. Already too sublime to walk the earth, still too heavily charged with humanity to disappear in the blue, suspended like atoms which are waiting to be precipitated, apparently beyond the bounds of destiny, ignorant of that rut, yesterday, today, tomorrow, amazed, rapturous, floating, soaring, at times so light that they could take their flight out into the infinite, almost prepared to soar away to all eternity. They slept wide awake, thus sweetly lulled, oh, splendid lethargy, of the real overwhelmed by the ideal. Sometimes, beautiful as Cosette was, Marius shut his eyes in her presence. The best way to look at the soul is through closed eyes. Marius and Cosette never asked themselves whither this was to lead them. They considered that they had already arrived. It is a strange claim on man's part to wish that love should lead to something. End of chapter 2 Book 8, Chapter 3, The Beginning of Shadow Jean Valjean suspected nothing. Cosette, who was rather less dreamy than Marius, was gay, and that sufficed for Jean Valjean's happiness. The thoughts which Cosette cherished, her tender preoccupations, Marius's image, which filled her heart, took away nothing from the incomparable purity of her beautiful, chaste, and smiling brow. She was at the age when the Virgin bears her love as the angel his lily. So Jean Valjean was at ease. And then, when two lovers have come to an understanding, things always go well. The third party who might disturb their love is kept in a state of perfect blindness by a restricted number of precautions, which are always the same in the case of all lovers. Thus, Cosette never objected to any of Jean Valjean's proposals. Did she want to take a walk? Yes, dear little father. Did she want to stay at home? Very good. Did he wish to pass the evening with Cosette? She was delighted. As he always went to bed at ten o'clock, Marius did not come to the garden on such occasions until after that hour, when from the street he heard Cosette open the long glass door on the veranda. Of course, no one ever met Marius in the daytime. Jean Valjean never even dreamed any longer that Marius was in existence. 
Only once, one morning, he chanced to say to Cosette, Why, you have whitewash on your back. On the previous evening, Marius, in a transport, had pushed Cosette against the wall. Old Toussaint, who retired early, thought of nothing but her sleep, and was as ignorant as the whole matter as Jean Valjean. Marius never set foot in the house. When he was with Cosette, they hid themselves in a recess near the steps, in order that they might neither be seen nor heard from the street, and there they sat, frequently contenting themselves, by way of conversation, with pressing each other's hands twenty times a minute as they gazed at the branches of the trees. At such times, a thunderbolt might have fallen thirty paces from them, and they would not have noticed it. So deeply was the reverie of one absorbed and sunk in the reverie of the other. Limpid purity, ours wholly white, almost all alike. This sort of love is a recollection of lily petals and the plunge of the dove. The whole extent of the garden lay between them and the street. Every time that Marius entered and left, he carefully adjusted the bar of the gate in such a manner that no displacement was visible. He usually went away about midnight and returned to Corfirac's lodgings. Corfirac said to Bohorel, Would you believe it? Maurice comes home nowadays at one o'clock in the morning. Bohorel replied, What do you expect? There's always a batard in a seminary fellow. At times, Corfirac folded his arms, assumed a serious air, and said to Marius, you are getting irregular in your habits, young man. Corfirac, being a practical man, did not take in good part this reflection of an invisible paradise upon Marius. He was not much in the light of concealed passions. It made him impatient. And now and then he called upon Marius to come back to reality. One morning he threw him this admonition. My dear fellow, you produce upon me the effect of being located in the moon. The realm of dreams, the province of illusions, capital, soap bubble. Come, be a good boy. What's her name? But nothing could induce Marius to talk. They might have torn out his nails before one of the two sacred syllables of which that ineffable name, Cosette, was composed. True love is as luminous as the dawn and as silent as the tomb. Only Corfirac saw this change in Marius, that his taciturnity was of the beaming order. During this sweet month of May, Marius and Cosette learned to know these immense delights, to dispute and to say you for thou, simply that they might say thou the better afterwards, to talk at great length with very minute details of persons in whom they took not the slightest interest in the world, Another proof that in that ravishing opera called Love, the libretto counts for almost nothing. For Marius to listen to Cosette discussing finery. For Cosette to listen to Marius talk in politics. To listen, knee pressed to knee, to the carriages rolling along the Rue de Babylone. To gaze upon the same planet in space, or at the same glowworm gleaming in the grass to hold their peace together, a still greater delight than conversation, etc., etc. In the meantime, 
divers' complications were approaching. One evening, Marius was on his way to the rendezvous, by way of the boulevard des Invalides. He habitually walked with drooping head. As he was on the point of turning the corner of the Rue Plummet, he heard someone quite close to him say, Good evening, Monsieur Marius. He raised his head and recognized Eponine. This produced a singular effect upon him. He had not thought of that girl a single time since the day when she had conducted him to the Rue Plummet. He had not seen her again, and she had gone completely out of his mind. He had no reasons for anything but gratitude towards her. He owed her his happiness, and yet it was embarrassing to him to meet her. It is an error to think that passion, when it is pure and happy, leads man to a state of perfection. It simply leads him, as we have noted, to a state of oblivion. In this situation, man forgets to be bad, but he also forgets to be good. Gratitude, duty, matters essential and important to be remembered, vanish. At any other time, Marius would have behaved quite differently to Eponine, absorbed in Cosette. He had not even clearly put it to himself that this Eponine was named Eponine Thenardier, and that she bore the name inscribed in his father's will, that name for which, but a few months before, he would have so ardently sacrificed himself. We show Marius as he was. His father himself was fading out of his soul, to some extent, under the splendor of his love. He replied with some embarrassment, Ah, so it's you, Eponine? Why do you call me you? Have I done anything to you? No, he answered. Certainly he had nothing against her, far from it. Only he felt that he could not do otherwise now that he used thou for Cosette, then say you to Eponine. As he remained silent, she exclaimed, Say! Then she paused. It seemed as though words failed that creature formerly so heedless and so bold. She tried to smile and could not. Then she resumed. Well? Then she paused again and remained with downcast eyes. Good evening, Mr. Marius, said she suddenly and abruptly, and away she went. End of Book 8, Chapters 2 and 3 Recording by Joel Hermanson www.joelhermanson.com